June 30th, 2020, Belgium. Giant statue of King Leopold II in the city of Antwerp is set on fire, defaced, destroyed, before authorities take it down. 147 years, our oldest statue yet on this podcast. King Leopold II's rule in what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo was so bloody it eventually was condemned by European colonists in 1908. Last pod, we found great utility in learning about our European connection. Today, we'll be looking at one of Europe's greatest sins, one of its original sins, and how it shapes our world and our time in 2020. Dealing with sometimes the uncomfortable, and always the historical. My name is Marcus, and this is Ozymandias. Who made this thing? Who is the guy? What was happening when it was put up? And how did it come down? Let's start. So far, this is July 5th, 2020 on recording. So far, 11 million Europeans have joined in solidarity protesting the killing of George Floyd while in police custody. If the idea of other countries across the world protesting United States police brutality in solidarity with Americans has you itching to learn more, Belgium is just absolutely the place that we have to start. King Leopold II, he has a lot of statues throughout the country of Belgium. There are 13 that I'm able to locate, uh, that I'm able to see online, and getting the feeling that all of these are coming down. Uh, So a big thank you to our friends in Belgium, and uh, also such a global representation of this time that we are living in. If you're thinking that this is a United States story, this is, this is global history that is happening. Um, and we'll start with, in Antwerp, uh, the original King Leopold II statue that he put up of himself. This is 147 years old. It has about a 20-foot-tall stone base. It's, it's circular, on top of that is a, about an eight and a half foot tall bronze horse with a life scale statue fit for a king. Uh, king Leopold II sitting on top of this statue. He's in military attire, flat top hat, sword on his side. Uh, honestly, it looks very Belgium kind of history there. Um, he put this up eight years into his own reign as king, which we'll get into. After the original statue is put into place by the king himself, uh, King Leopold leads Belgium up to 1909, handing the baton off to his nephew, Albert I. Albert I goes on to put up 12 more statues throughout World War I and in the interwar period leading up to World War II, where this represents the peak of colonial patriotic propaganda. 
and this interwar period, this colonial patriotic propaganda, and this kind of original statue. What we're going to do today is we're going to talk about these King Leopold statues as a collective, these 13 as a group. And what is really important when we're thinking about what does this collective mean? Guys, the first use of the phrase crimes against humanity, crimes against humanity, are attributed to critiques related to the life of King Leopold II. Just knowing that, (laughs) the, the origin of crimes against humanity as a phrase in the English language is associated with this King Leopold II. What type of reconciliation remedies 147 years of this man and his horse towering in Antwerp over the series of events of World War I, World War II, and the rest of what becomes the 20th and 21st century leading to 2020 today. King Leopold II, for 147 years, from where he is and with what we're about to explain that he does to the world, with his statue coming down in 2020 today, is a full macro-historical perspective on the case for a greater reconciliation and a greater historical perspective in relation to institutionalized racism and the role that these European countries have played not only in that in the United States, not only in that in their home countries, and in this instance, Belgium, but also in the home continent of Africa itself. King Leopold II, son of his dad, Leopold I, and uh, son of his mom, uh, Louise, the daughter of King Louis-Philippe of France. So uh, the son of, of two royal lines, King Leopold II, what he is getting himself into in his reign as a monarch, he's looking around, he and, and Otto von Bismarck of Germany, they're starting to look around at some of their European neighbors, the Spanish, the English, the French, the Dutch, they have these navies, they have these colonial properties, they have this wealth. And some of these central powers are feeling a little boxed in, a little like they might not be able to compete. Conflict from the colonial wealth that is happening in these empires, well outside of the European bounds. It's tied to the goods, the materials, but also the, the, the labor, the manufacturing labor, the people, the populations, the populations to raise armies from, the populations to raise taxes from, the populations to grow from, were critical to compete. It wasn't just the island of the British Isles, the British Isles themselves, it was all of their properties. The sun never sets on the British Empire. Well, when you're Belgium... You want a piece of that. This is the world of 1884. It's important and it's known as the Berlin Conference. Just flash forwarding for you to just know what the outcome is that of, of this is so that we can get back to the King Leopold story. King Leopold and Germany and the rest of the European powers 
the map in 1880 of Africa and the map in 1913 of Africa is second in historical just outrageousness as far as remapping and redrawing. We think that gerrymandering is is crazy drawing of lines in, in our contemporary time. Imagine an entire continent with thousands of generations of history and ancestry and, and culture uh, being told within a short 33-year period that your your world is turned upside down. Um, the redrawing from 1880 to 1913 of Africa, the ownership, the agreed lines in the sand, the commercial tracks in the jostling for these various positions at the Berlin Conference in 1884. It originally gets called by Chancellor Otto von Bismarck from Germany. We're, we're talking about dividing up a continent's oil, ivory, rubber, palm oil, wood, cotton, gum, but also the people, the people who inhabit the continent. Labor to fulfill the path to capital accumulation. These, these monarchs from these aristocracy castes of, of, of communities, they are looking at each other as competitors, and they are looking at the world as an opportunity to deepen their hold and expand their influence. They go ahead, and in this Berlin Conference 1884, King Leopold II is given territory in Africa for him to be the sole owner of. These European powers just say, hey, this is, this is yours, my man. We, we know you. You're from the family. You know, once, twice removed. You've got that small country, but we know you want to get in on this action too. King Leopold is, is granted a, a territory in Africa, which is now Congo, This territory is 76 times the size of Belgium. You're going to find in your history books, early in your history books, early, you're working through your world history, you get to a chapter, it's a couple of pages, it's titled New Imperialism. You're going to hear Christian missionaries, you're going to hear about Jesuits, you're going to hear about about Russia and Japan going to war. This is the changing of the century and at this turn from 1886 until 1908 king leopold ii while being king of belgium he ran this territory in congo as a venture for personal profit he had a private army that included Congolese orphans, the king and his private army and agents, they drained the land of resources, killing elephants for ivory, tapping trees for rubber. Congolese families were forcibly moved and their members were separated and enslaved. All of the worst things, leaving as many as 10 million dead by some estimates. You know, it's not just an 1880 to 1913 geopolitical map change. You know, this isn't a, 
a game of risk. One of the first things that comes up when you search King Leopold II of Belgium are pictures of Congolese people. One picture that is and should be the picture that follows that chapter in the history book on new imperialism is a photograph by Alice Seeley Harris of a Congolese man named Nisala. Here is a part from her account from the book. And I'll just say right now as a quick visual of this photo, this is a father staring at the hand and foot of his five-year-old daughter whose hand and foot were severed as punishment for failing to make the daily rubber quota. Here's the photographer commenting from her her book, her memoir, Don't Call Me Lady, the journal of Lady Alice Seeley Harris. He hadn't made his rubber quota for the day, so the Belgian-appointed overseers had cut off his daughter's hand and foot. Her name was Boali. She was five years old. Then they killed her, but they weren't finished. Then they killed his wife, too. This photo that Alice is referencing here in her memoir, this was taken in 1904, Four more years to go for the Congolese people under this rule, King Leopold II. Many stories just like this captured by a photograph for the world to see. In television and as technology changes, you know, we know in American history that you know, as the television cameras were showing in the streets of Birmingham, people being hit by hydrant water and dogs being released on children. As those images changed our country, this photograph from 1904, this is the story of European colonialism. This is the story of the Berlin Conference of 1884. This is King Leopold II This is his history that his monuments represented for 147 years. This is one photograph, one family, of the 10 million attributed to King Leopold II. These are attributed to to Leopold II. We totally are going to throw Leopold under the bus and he's under there with Columbus, he's under there with Pike, and he's under there with a bunch more just terrible people that we're going to be talking about in, in, in the pods to come. Don't, don't, don't think we're getting off course here. But this is also attributed to the Berlin Conference. This is a commentary on this entire structure of colonialism, of these private enterprises Anglo-Belgian India Rubber Company, the private armies, I mean, think Pinkertons, the Dutch East India Trading Company, you know, the guys in Pirates of the Caribbean, the capitalists who are calling all the shots. When the morality of the open seas depends if your proceeds from pirating make it back to the guy wearing a crown, uh, if this morality is money, then everybody's a pirate. Morality. What is good is what is wealthy. 
we have to kind of look at that in this 1884 Berlin conference. We have to kind of look at 1884 in this paradigm shift of right and wrong and the relationship of wealth and the role of the state manipulating truth and fact and what the state's aim is or what the state's mission is. You know, the reason that Leopold II's nephew, who we mentioned earlier, there's a reason that he puts up 12 more statues of his great uncle representing this colonial patriotic propaganda. The propaganda is there for a reason justifying the actions that were otherwise devout of any holy properties. 1884, there is a reason that our guy, Nietzsche, comes out in this year and says, God is dead. These guys are taking the world's riches and abusing the world's people and committing genocide without a compass, without a North Star, without a moral code. We're kind of like Christopher Columbus in episode one, as he was a famous guy who could drive a boat without a compass. That was his one shining moment. We are without a compass. King Leopold II and his pursuits of private wealth in the Congo, 10 million lives lost and ruined. This global conversation about racial injustice, institutional racism of police brutality, of the relationship between the state and the people that the state is there to serve, it gets twisted when the people in the state are the individuals profiting from the way that they are directing the course of history. The countries represented at the time of the Berlin Conference, 1884, included Austria-Hungary, Belgium, Denmark, France, Germany, Great Britain, Italy, the Netherlands, Portugal, Russia, Spain, Sweden, Norway. They were unified at the time between 1814 and 1905, so they've got a hyphen there. Uh, Turkey and the United States of America was present as well. Quote, unquote, civilization was at the core of King Leopold II's pitch to these European and, and American leaders when they sliced up and allocated territories in what we now look at as the scramble for Africa. Ten million people were killed just under King Leopold II's rule, while untold riches were accumulated, accumulated. During a protest in Brussels on Sunday, 2020, just at the turn from June into July, more than 10,000 people showed up at this protest. Some were climbing on statues, and, and as a King Leopold II statue was prepared to being uh, beheaded, uh, a giant flag flew of the Democratic Republic of Congo, their state flag, chanting with chance of murderer with chance of reparations 
One protester comments, when I walk in a city that in every corner glorifies racism and colonialism, it tells me that me and my history are not valid. For decades in, in Belgium, in, in their history books, colonial history is barely taught. Many classrooms still show Herge's famous cartoon book, Tin Tin in the Congo, with its depictions of black people now commonly accepted as extremely racist. How we depict our past in our history books and what we mount as monument in our capital cities matters for what our future will be. Deborah Kambe, a Congolese human rights attorney who has lived in Belgium for many years, she was quoted as saying, everyone is waking up from a sleep. It's a reckoning with the past. We are with you, Deborah, and we are with the people of Belgium, and we thank this global movement for collectively looking at this. And in this King Leopold II story, what we hope to do, as we always do on this pod, is to illuminate not just the individual, their time, and their story, but what is the context and the greater themes? And with King Leopold II from 1884 to now, we see this global story and we see that culminating in 2020. And we see the Belgian people standing up and having a say in what their history will be in their future. And it's not the history of King Leopold II. As we do on this podcast, let's give it to Percy Shelley to close us off. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my work, see mighty in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. This has been Ozymandias. See you on the next one.